The New Testament reading is Matthew 9:35 through 10:15. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The word of the Lord. Lincoln Hope, it's, it's good to be with you. This morning, and if this is your first time here, we're, we're so glad, we're so grateful that you're joining us, and um, we'd love to meet you afterwards. We do some some coffee, tea, snacks, so please do um, hang around. We would we would love to meet you. And right now, we're going through the the book of, of Matthew, and we come to a very important section, as we talked about in the children's sermon, uh, the children's section, that this is the calling and the sending of the 12 disciples. So as we come to this passage, let us first come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, for, for Jesus Christ and the gospel. We thank you for this message that Christ proclaimed, that he sent his disciples to proclaim, and that you yourself have sent us to proclaim. Father God, as we think about this passage, as we dig into this passage, we pray that you would apply it to our heads, to our hands, to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, Caitlin Tiffany, a writer for The Atlantic, she, she directs us to a concerning trend in modern society. It's one that valorizes and makes virtuous the, the dismissing, the casting off of any obligations that we might owe to other persons. She gives special attention here to, to social media and, and the relational advice that it daily gives out. For instance, she, she provides a sample tweet from Twitter. It reads, I don't know who needs to hear this, but if someone hurts your feelings, 
you are allowed to get rid of them. And Tiffany also explains that persons, they're hungry for definitions of toxic. If a person is toxic, then I can ethically cut them out of my life, and I have no obligations to them or for them. And so, what qualifies as, as toxic? What criteria allows me to banish a person away from my love and care? Well, as, as the earlier tweet suggests, Tiffany points out that these standards can be quite low and minimal. For instance, she quotes a, a WebMD page that defines a toxic person as anyone whose behavior adds negativity and upset to your life. If a person produces in you any thoughts or emotions or feelings or experiences that are not anything but positive, send them off. If a person burdens you with their needs, if they offer you no help in fulfilling your own goals and ambitions, get rid of them. Eventually, Tiffany asks, seemingly in desperation, if the people in our lives aren't our responsibility, then what is? And of course, the, the implied answer is myself. Only and always myself, this and this alone, me and me alone, are my only responsibility and obligation. Ironically, or perhaps not, this is actually the perfect advice for avoiding God. God actually will add negativity and upset to your life. God will lay upon you the burdens of others. God will confront you and change your plans. God will actually make your life more difficult, not easier. God will even go so far as to command you to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The reformer, the pastor, the theologian Martin Luther, he, he describes the human in sin as the person curved in upon himself. But God calls us to the very opposite of that in this passage. God calls us out of ourselves. He calls us even to weep and to mourn with and for others. And as we'll see, God himself does not follow the advice of cutting off anyone who is adding negativity or upset to our life. Because he does not follow that advice, there is such a thing as salvation. And so let's look at this passage under the following three headings. Seeing the lost, serving the lost, and saving the lost. Let's start first with seeing the lost. In the beginning of today's passage, we see Jesus doing the very thing that he will call his disciples to do. He's going to numerous cities and villages. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing diseases. He's healing afflictions. And who is it that Jesus is going to? Well, Jesus is going to those crowds that he looks at and describes as harassed, as dejected, as helpless. And Jesus goes even further in chapter 10, verse 6, when he's talking directly to the disciples. He speaks of the last, sorry, sorry, he speaks of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the English here can be deceiving. 
Christ is saying more than sheep who have simply lost their way. As one commentator, Frederick Bruner, writes of the Greek term here that is, is translated as lost, he says, it does not mean lost in the sense of strayed, but it means lost in the sense of perished. Jesus saw people in a more perilous and endangered state than we are accustomed to seeing them. Jesus looks at the crowds and he sees people who are in the grip of death, people who are perishing, people who are dying, people who are on their way to eternal death. This is how we must understand the sense of lostness here. Yes, absolutely, it's veering from the path that God has for us, but it's also more than veering. It's dying, it's death. And when we speak of the lost, we are speaking of those who have detached themselves from the very source of life, from God himself. When we speak of, of lostness, we must think more of, of perishing than, than straying, more of mortality than meandering, more of death than deviating. This is the language that Jesus himself uses. And this is not new, as, as Moses said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 30. Love the Lord your God, obeying his voice and clinging to him, for he himself is your life and your length of days. However, as Moses warns us in the same chapter, but if your hearts turn away, you shall surely perish. To be away from God is to be without life, to be in the grip of death, to perish. And this might strike us as overdramatic or heavy-handed. It might even strike us as exclusive or dangerous. But let me ask you a question. Is there a way that humans are supposed to live? Is there a way that we as humans are meant to live? Is there a right way, a proper way of being human? We would all agree, I think, that there's a right way of being a tree. And one reason we find out the wrong way of being a tree is because we see the death of the tree. We see the tree perish. For instance, we wouldn't call a farmer narrow or oppressive or small-minded if the farmer refused to give the tree things other than sun and soil and light. This is simply what the tree needs in order to live and to grow and to flourish. The, the farmer might try to make the tree a carnivore. The farmer might even leave the choicest cuts of steak at the root of the tree. But it's not going to work. A tree doesn't eat meat. And so the farmer offers the tree the only kind of food that exists for the tree. Sun and soil, water and light. But is this also true for a human being? Is there a proper way to be human? If not, then it's true that we cannot speak of lostness and perishing. But that also means that we also cannot speak of foundness and flourishing. They go together. If life and meaning are simply what individuals make it, then there is not only not a lostness, but there's not really a flourishing. As philosopher Alistair McIntyre tells us, if there's no proper way to be human, if there's no particular or specific form of human flourishing, then there's no criteria, nothing outside of us that we can appeal to other than our own emotions and feelings. 
only if there's something outside of us that can actually call us to account, only then our ethics and the purposes we pursue as humans, only then are they anything more than mere preferences. If there's no external and objective form of lostness, and if there's no external and objective form of flourishing, then we can't actually say that anything is right or wrong. We can only tell people what we would prefer them to do or not to do. Perhaps you tell me that I should make sure that those who work for me earn a living wage. But really, all that you're telling me is that you feel that I should do this. But since there's no order out there, then the order I feel within myself must be right. And perhaps my personal order is different from your personal order. And besides, the workers have consented to work for this price. I'm not forcing them. And even if you think it's unfair, and even if they think it's unfair, it seems they would still prefer to work here rather than someone else, somewhere else. And again, what more do we have than preferences? In fact, if the only reason that we are here as creatures is because our ancestors got the best of other creatures, then really the only rule that we could ever find out there is the rule of the strong devouring the weak. And I might argue that my treatment of the poor and marginalized is actually more in line with what got us both here in the first place. You tell me that I'm free to make my own meaning in life, and now you're angry that I've actually gone and done it. Am I allowed to make my own meaning and significance, or aren't I? We have to make up our mind. Either there's an actual ethical order in the world that stands above all of us, or there isn't. It has to be one or the other. Either we can reason together because there's some standard that calls us all to account, that tells us what a human should be and should do, or there isn't. And our only option is to get angrier and to shout louder. But if there is some standard that calls us to account, then just as a tree can perish or flourish, so too can a human perish or flourish. Just as a tree can wither and wilt and die from not being a tree in the right way, so can we. If you picked up a book on raising trees and you got angry because the book limited you to soil and sun and water, you would not ultimately be angry at the book, but you'd be angry at what kind of thing a tree is. The book simply tells you about the creational design of the tree. And if you don't give these things to the tree, the tree will be lost. The tree will perish. And so, if that's the case, what are the conditions that Christ gives us for human flourishing if there actually is a true external objective form of flourishing for humanity? Well, he says that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Christ says to seek to conform ourselves to any other pattern of life, we will be lost. We will be perishing. Again, you might call this small-minded, but if you don't have an actual standard of human flourishing, you can't have any ethic at all. But if you do have a standard, then you are necessarily being just as specific and just as exclusive. You are saying that there is a proper way to be human, that there is such a thing as the good life, that there is such a thing as human flourishing. And you are saying 
To not do this, to do otherwise, is in some way, shape, or form to perish. For instance, recall the, the ethical command, cut off anyone who ever adds negativity or upset to your life. Well, this ethic is just as exclusive and just as specific as the biblical ethic. It clearly tells you that there is a certain form of life that leads to flourishing and a certain form of life that leads to perishing. But here, we find an ethic that is completely opposite the ethic of Christ. Here, the ethic is love yourself with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor insofar as it serves you. But we do have a clear and definite standard that we're here being called to. But what Christ calls lostness here becomes flourishing, and what Christ calls flourishing becomes lostness. It's no less exclusionary, but please do ask yourself, which of these two ethics do you find most compelling? For one, this ethic of self-love, it has no place for the deep love of the other. Yes, it divides the worlds into those who are flourishing, those who love themselves above all else, and those who are perishing, those who let themselves be burdened and obligated by others. But by its very nature, it can have no love for those who it considers to be lost. Because to weep and to love and to mourn the lost, well, that is to experience the very negative emotions that it says we should never let other people cause us. And we all know that true and deep love for another person in a fallen world will lead us into circumstances and situations that will upset our heart. There's no way around it. As C.S. Lewis tells us about human love, this is a bit of a long quote, but it's a good quote. Lewis says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable. To love is to be vulnerable. The alternative to tragedy, tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all of the dangers of love is hell. Such an ethic not only turns the biblical ethic on its head, but as Lewis warns us, it turns heaven into hell, and it turns hell into heaven. Hell is the one place where you need not worry about the other, the one place where you're finally free from all love except the love of yourself for yourself. To Christ, however, this is a key form of lostness, and this breaks Christ's heart. It moves him to compassion. He weeps and he mourns for those who are perishing in this state. He does this even though, Christ, even though Christ knows that this is the very same crowd that will be calling for his death. And so what we have are one of three options. We have to choose. We can not have a category of lostness and perishing and instead have only our own emotional preferences. Two, 
We can have a standard of perishing and flourishing that calls us to the perfect love of God and neighbor. Or three, we can have a standard of perishing and flourishing that is less than this perfect love. It, it might be less in degree. Well, not, not a perfect love, but a, but a good enough love. Or it can be different in its object. Not loving God and neighbor, but loving ourself above all else, as we see in this ethic of, of social media. And we have to choose one of these three. And as for Christ, those who do not seek to be conformed to this perfect love are lost. And this moves Christ to compassion. They are lost and perishing, and Christ seeks to bring them life. And as we'll see, Christ calls us to do the very same thing. Which brings us to our second point, serving the lost. In response to his compassion, Jesus tells the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Christ tells us to pray that others will go with him to seek the lost and the perishing. Christ prays that others would be filled with a heart of compassion. And it's no coincidence that immediately after this command to pray, we see the very specific and particular and personal fruit of Christ's own prayer. Christ prays this prayer, and then he calls his 12 disciples by name to himself. And in this calling, Christ does the very same thing that he calls us to do. Christ is bringing back the lost sheep, back to the love of God and to the love of each other. Christ is grafting them into this perfect life of flourishing. The disciples have come to Christ, who is God, but they've also come to each other, to their neighbor. And what we see here is that laboring together to the labor that Christ calls us, it's the very means by which our love for the other is restored. There's no stronger bond of love between persons than when they labor together in the field of God's harvest. And this laboring together, this being sent together by Christ, it actually brings together people who by society standards could not be anything other than enemies. Note that there are only two public roles that were given in this list of the disciples. Many of the disciples were fishermen, but we're not told that. The only details like this that we are given is Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. And to speak of a zealot is to speak of a kind of a revolutionary who rebelled against the very Roman Empire that the tax collectors were daily working for. As one commentator puts it, a zealot was as far removed from a tax collector as a leftist guerrilla is from a right-wing conservative. We find ourselves today in very different circumstances, but we can absolutely relate to these tensions. A recent article in The Guardian, it gives the following shocking statistic. It says, animosity toward those in the opposing party is higher than at any time in living memory. 42% of registered voters believe Americans in the other party are downright evil. And that's a quote, downright evil. 42% of registered voters think that people who don't share their political beliefs are downright evil. And certainly, if you are downright evil, you are certainly, absolutely, definitely among the lost, among the perishing. You are not living as humans were meant to live. 
And so here again, we find another category of, of lostness. And in our present moment, we see more and more communities, institutions, groups of all kinds separated by political divides. Yes, this divide is felt, but it certainly can't be any greater than the political divide that existed between Matthew and Simon. Certainly before Christ called them, each saw the other as downright evil. But here they are, laboring together at the feet of Christ. C.S. Lewis tells us that true friendship is, is standing side by side with someone and being absorbed in some common interest. And it is the common interest of Christ alone that can overcome any divisions that tear us apart whether they be along politics or race or a million other things. And so these disciples are brought together by Christ. They're called to labor together with Christ, seeking to bring others, other lost persons, to Christ. Now they, too, have hearts that break for the lost, for those who are perishing. Their hearts break for those who are living in alienation, and detachment and separation from both God and neighbor. Among other things, this is a charge to our community groups, and I'm, I'm very much speaking to myself here as well, to find ways to seek and to serve and to love the lost together. We find here that nothing brings together brothers and sisters in Christ quite like this. And so Christ sends out his 12 disciples into the harvest. And initially, Christ tells them only to go to the lost sheep of Israel. And this is keeping with God's plan of salvation. For instance, Paul in Romans tells us that God brings salvation first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The harvest is ripe and ready for picking for the people of Israel. But the harvest of the Gentiles will come in time. And in fact, the Gospel of Matthew actually ends with Jesus' great commission sending people out to all nations. But here, the disciples are also charged to take nothing with them, to rely wholly upon the worthy people of the towns that they enter. And what this will force them to do is to know the lost to know personally those to whom they are ministering. It will stop the disciples from relating to people as pure and simple benefactors. It will keep the disciples from pride. And this is also wise relational advice. I recently heard an interview about ministering to our neighbor, and, and the speaker said, actually, the best way to start friendships with neighbors in your community is asking for your neighbor's help. This might seem counterintuitive, but in our modern moment, we all idealize independence. We're very uneasy, however, about inconveniencing our neighbor. You know, we, we tell our neighbors, if, if I can help you with anything, please do let me know. And rarely, if ever, do our neighbors actually come and knock on our doors in need. However, People are much more likely to lend a hand when asked. The average neighbor is more willing to be inconvenienced than to inconvenience. To be a good neighbor can actually start with being a needy neighbor. 
And of course, this can be as simple as borrowing eggs, borrowing a tool, borrowing anything. It can be asking your neighbors to take the trash can out to the curb for trash day when you're, when you're out of town. These are steps towards sharing life together with the neighbors in your community. And especially, especially as Christ calls the disciples here to share a home and to share meals is to come to know someone personally. There's no other love for the lost than the love for actual, concrete, specific, personal, particular people. And those are actually the only kind of people that exist. And so Jesus forces us not to be aloof, but to be personally involved with people. And so the disciples must share space and meals and resources with concrete people. And as we all know, this can be difficult. There's a scene, for instance, in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, where a character recounts his experience with another man who once told him these words. And, and this also, it's, it's a bit of a long quote, but it's a great quote. The more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. In my dreams, I often come to making enthusiastic schemes for the service of humanity. And yet, I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. One because he's too long over his dinner. Another because he has a cold and he keeps blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. But it has always happened. The more I detest men individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity. What great irony there. But we can all relate. And this is exactly what Christ calls us from. Yes, this, this dependence is an act of faith. The disciples are called to trust God to provide through the hospitality of others. Absolutely. But this is also meant to foster love for the people they have been sent to. It brings the disciples life, and it will also bring us life. If the life of flourishing consists in rightly loving God and neighbor, then if I am not loving personal, concrete people, I'm not loving the lost. I'm not loving my perishing neighbor who is alienated from God and neighbor. And if I'm not doing that, then I myself am lost and perishing. Which brings us to our third point, saving the lost. Again, Christ has shown us here that there is a criterion for being lost. We're alienated from God and neighbor. We are lost if we're not seeking to conform ourselves to the water and soil and sunlight of the human life. If we're not seeking to love God and neighbor rightly. And Christ has shown us that we are to love the lost. We must love those who fail to flourish, who are perishing. We are to love them personally, and we are to love them concretely. Even more, the churches laboring together to love and seek the lost is a key way that those in the church come to love one another. But all of this presupposes that the lost can be saved from perishing. It presupposes that those who have been given life can work 
to save the perishing. You might ask, but isn't this a patronizing, pretentious, arrogant ethic? Isn't it demeaning to divide the world into flourishing and perishing? Well, first off, again, to have an ethic of any kind that is going to be more than mere preferences, an ethic that affirms that there's a right and proper and good way to be human, any ethic like this will divide the world into the perishing and the flourishing. There's no way around it. However, this question is still spot on. To divide the world like this would be patronizing. It would make people proud and look down on those whom they consider perishing. Or at least it would if there were any way to save the lost other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember that Christ sent his disciples to preach and to proclaim a message. And this message was the gospel. This is the gospel of the kingdom that makes alive the dead, that brings people into the kingdom of heaven. And what is this message? Well, it's the message of Christ, of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Perhaps you are put off by this ethic of perfectly loving God and neighbor. If that's what it means to flourish to not perish, then who among us is not among the dead? Who among us is not perishing? Who among us is not lost? Again, this question is spot on, and it brings us to the whole crux of the problem. We, all of us, have turned away from God, and now we are called to fulfill an ethic that is beyond our power. Because in turning away from God, our hearts began to perish. Our hearts no longer work like they should. But this is precisely why Christ came. Before any of us are sent by God, we must remember that God was sent to us. Specifically, God the Father sent the Son to us to save us, to give us life. God the Son became human. He came to us in our lostness, in our death, and he lived the perfect life of flourishing even in our fallen world where love makes you vulnerable. He really did love God and neighbor perfectly. However, even though he lived this perfect life, this perfect ethic of human flourishing, he perished. He died. He himself was lost. Christ lived the life that we are called to live, but on the cross, on the cross, he took the death and the perishing that we deserve. Christ did this so that we might have life, that we might be saved from eternal lostness and death. Christ merited life, but received death. So that we who merit death might receive life. Christ became alienated from neighbor. Christ was put to death by the very crowds that he loved and served. Christ became alienated from God as he cried out on the cross in his human nature, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The voice of the Father which before had spoken so tenderly to him, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This voice was now silent. The heavens were no longer open in fatherly delight, but dark in wrath. Yes, this is why Christ was sent to save the lost and the dying. 
But here's the thing. Those who are saved from lostness and death are the ones who know that they deserve lostness and death. They're the ones who confess that Christ has humbly taken upon himself what they deserve. And when they turn in faith to Christ and no longer find themselves alienated from God and neighbor, they do have life. They enter into the life of flourishing now in part, one day in full when Christ returns at the resurrection. But note, this is a life of flourishing that comes with the confession that we deserve death. And so the difference here from all of the other ways that we carve up the world is that with Christ, those who are flourishing are the very ones who recognize that they deserve to be perishing. And so they should never look down on others, never look down on the lost. With Christ, to be proud is to perish, but to be humble is to flourish. And these are the only two options, and we must make a decision. There is no neutrality here. There is either life or death, flourishing or perishing, humility or pride. And so we will either receive by faith the message that the disciples proclaimed, the message that Christ is, the message that alone saves the lost, or we will reject it and cling to death. And this, I believe, explains the disciples' gestures of, of, of wiping the dust off their feet after this message of life has been rejected. Dust in Scripture becomes a symbol of death. Because of sin, God warns Adam, you are dust, and to dust you will return. To reject this message is to perish, to commit oneself to the dust of death that falls lifeless upon the ground. To reject this message of life just is to pursue perishing. But there's one more sending here. Just as the Father sends the Son, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. As the ancient African Bishop Augustine tells us, the Holy Spirit is the very love of God. He is the love that binds together the Father and the Son. And He, like the Son, is sent to us. God sends his Holy Spirit into us, and so the Spirit is the love that God himself pours out into our hearts. When we feel tepid and lukewarm and lax in our love for God and neighbor, which will happen in this life, let us remember that God's own love, God's own love that unites the Father and the Spirit, this divine love lives within us. Let us remember that God's own love, the Holy Spirit, is loving God and neighbor with us and for us. The Father has sent the Son to give life. The Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to give us love. And now, having received salvation by these acts of sending, we must too be sent to the lost and the dying with this message of love and life. This is why in the close of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus charges his disciples to go to the lost in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are called by God to participate in the very sending of God. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for Christ, whose heart breaks with compassion for us when he sees us in our lostness. We thank you, Lord, that he became lost so that we might receive life. And Father, help our hearts to break for the lost in humility 
and love and compassion. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.